Hello and welcome to the Funds Fanatic Show, where I'm very pleased to be joined today by Bailey Gifford's James Dow. The Edinburgh firm may have become best known in recent years for its successful bets on fast-growing stocks like Tesla, but James actually runs a number of global equity income funds, as well as the Scottish American Investment Trust. We speak at an interesting juncture for income investing, which, after a tough time for much of the pandemic, is attracting investors once again as market conditions change. James, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you very much for having me on. Great to be here. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, thank you for joining us. First things first, people um, probably don't really associate income investing with Bailey Gifford. Um, What's distinctive about your approach? Yeah, so I'd say what's distinctive and and the origins of the approach really is a quite simple idea. Um, We've said, what if we applied a philosophy of long-term growth to income investing. So you know, you, you alluded to it at the start, that Bailey Gifford has a heritage of being uh, growth-focused and it's uh, unusually long-term, I would say, in its investment horizon. Um, and about, this is going back about 10 years now, we said, well, what if we took that expertise and then we applied it to income investing? Meaning, you know, if we took a, a portfolio of stocks globally from around the world, which we think have got great prospects for growing their earnings and dividends on a longer term, like 10-year view. And then we use that portfolio as the basis for an income fund. And that philosophy is quite distinctive, I think, because the the majority of income managers start from a very different place. You know, typically they'll they'll they basically start with the yield of the fund. And and what happens is, you know, their 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 marketing team will say to them, Okay, guys, you're an income fund, so uh, you know I can't sell that to clients unless I've got a yield of like four percent or something, or you know whatever the magic number is at the time. And then from it's from that starting point that the manager would try to reverse engineer their portfolio, and they'll they'll try to find high yielding companies that can hit that yield number. Um, and you see many managers, um, I think even you know, something that Neil Woodford was doing and owning Imperial Tobacco and so forth and trying to hit that yield target. And that's basically why you end up with income funds typically full of utilities and banks and telcos and so forth to, to meet that marketing requirement. But if you if you step back and think about it, it's not a, it, it's, it's a really bad place to start because yield is a one year number, right? It's it's next year's dividend divided by the current share price. And if you're an income investor, you don't need one year of income. You need years and years of income. So if you're in retirement or you're a charity, say, or an endowment, your time horizon is usually measured in in many years, probably decades. And then as an equity investor, of course, what you're what you're buying when you own a share is a is a claim to the company's future dividends from here to eternity, not just one year. So so it's a it's like a fundamental misalignment between the investment manager and the client. If the manager is focusing heavily on next year's dividend yield when they're assembling the portfolio. So what we've said, and, and, and that philosophy continues to this day, is wouldn't income clients end up far better off financially over the long term if we, as the managers, focus not on the yield, but on finding companies with great growth prospects in their earnings and dividends over a period of a decade or more? 
because that way our time horizons would be aligned with our clients and we'd be trying to harness the power of long-term compounding but in the favor of income investors over that that 5 10 20 years whatever and and what we hope to see is that our clients actually end up with more income thanks to the wonders wonders of compounding um, and a more resilient income stream typically and a lot more capital growth than with them with that traditional income approach and and so i think that's that focus on long term growth which is you know i, th- I think the, the numbers will show that over time have resulted in our clients receiving both an income stream that's grown well ahead of inflation but but significantly more capital growth than traditional approaches to income and um Th- th- thanks, James. So you and you actually manage a, a number of funds which have uh, maybe slight variations on, on, on this approach. Can you, can you quickly just, as well as the Scottish American Investment Trust, can you can you just take us through what those funds are and basically what they do? Yes, yeah, so, so we call them variants, and there's three of them. There's Scottish American, as you mentioned, and that has a 60 stock global equity portfolio at its heart and then it uses borrowings long-term borrowings to generate a little bit of extra income through a, a property and bond and infrastructure portfolio it's not a huge part of the asset it's just a little bit of a difference so you, you've got that investment trust benefit then there's our we have an open-ended fund our global income growth fund which is just the equity portfolio from saints and then our third variant is our responsible global equity income fund that we launched about four years ago and the difference there is that it has has a range of um, product uh, harm exclusions explicitly on it, um, and that knocks out sort of six or seven names. To, for clients, you want the comfort to know that um, there are certain things excluded from what we own. Now, what I will say is that it, um, people say, well, that's, that's not very distinctive as a responsible fund. All of our strategies take ESG matters extremely seriously. And so if you look at our saints or the core fund, you will find that the the standard that we hold companies to is very high. And that's why with our responsible fund, it's just it's principally the exclusions that make the, the, the big difference. Um, and, and it's a, a proper responsible fund. Okay. And I was going to ask on that. So anyway, so in a way, running that responsible mandate doesn't add that much challenge. Then it's something; it's just something at the margins where you say maybe we don't invest in, um, yeah, you know, the, a, a, this the, alcohol stock or something like that. Right, because the, the commonality is so high. But but let me stress: um, we do a huge amount of work around the impact of companies on on their wider stakeholders because we have got that sort of ten year view, and we're looking for compounded growth year after year our view is is that thinking about environmental impact social impact governance of the company all those factors is absolutely critical to what we're doing not it's not sort of an add-on for the responsible fund it's something that we do across all of our variants what what we found we originally started this about four years ago for some charity clients we had who said we want a, a, a more explicit approach with more exclusions I think what we found the past four years is that kind of delving deeper into that and and making sure that we're doing a great job of that has been really really powerful not just from a from an ESG perspective and a, but also from a sort of pure investment financial investment perspective for for all of our strategies and and the reason it's been so great and we found it such a, a good thing to do is it's it's basically given us a sort of front row seats to how the companies we invest in actually behave 
if you're an investor, right, you can, everybody can look at financial statements and they can take their view on market growth rates and all that stuff, right? But one of the biggest things you've got to get right is what about the values and the culture of the company that you're investing in? Over a 10-year view, that's really going to come to roost or, or not, you know, or be an advantage. And that's really hard to judge. But once you start looking at things through, a, through an ESG lens about impacts on stakeholders and you observe how companies are handling that, you know, are they trying to be the best in the world and world-class or are they quite dismissive of everything and, oh, it's a waste of time kind of thing? That's really, really revealing for the type of company you're investing in. So I, I feel mm. like that, again, it doesn't look like a huge difference between our responsible fund and our, our other variants, but it's been hugely powerful sort of leaning into getting better at thinking about stakeholders and our responsible funds, not just from an ESG's perspective, but from an investment, financial investment perspective, understanding our companies. Yeah. Can I ask you for an example of a decision you've made off the back of some of that extra research? Yep. Um, so uh, there was a company we sold last year, um, a Swedish industrial company, uh, uh, where we we were unhappy with the way that they were treating the business and external shareholders and the way they were behaving and you know it could maybe they get away with it but in the long term we think probably not and that's not what we would expect to see we didn't we were a bit shocked by that and so we disinvested on the other hand um in this year we've um for the first time invested in l'oreal the beauty company and one of the a big attractions of that is that again doing all that analysis around that we have a we have a whole framework around assessing impact on stakeholders um time and again it's come up that l'oreal is really a leader in that they set the industry standard they drag people along with them saying come on we can get better at this we can do a great job and that's given us a lot of confidence in the in the values of culture of the company because we can see time and again what what leaders they have been on these important matters right oh, that, that that's interesting thanks and um in terms of the core approach uh, of what you're looking for, you know, dividend growth over the long term because the underlying business is growing, creating a resilient income stream. What about, can you give us a couple of examples of, of uh, you know, companies in the portfolio where that's worked well uh, and, and maybe an example of a time it hasn't worked so well? Mm-hmm. Um, so about, we, we have about 60 names in the portfolio. And about a third of those we've owned for more than 10 years is, is continuously as shareholders. So th- there's a good starting point, sort of long-term ones that we've had for a long time. Um, one of those would be uh, analog devices. So that's a semiconductor manufacturer based in the US. Um, its specialty is, as the name suggests, uh, an- analog semiconductors. So you know anything that's not ones and zeros, but sort of w- waves, power, um, sound, those kind of things. Real leaders in that field, specialists, something that's very hard to do, um, very high return and profitable business model. And about 10 years ago, the market, for whatever reason, thought it was incredibly boring. And it was it was trading, I think, about a 2% dividend yield when we bought it. Um, and we said, well, hang on, you know, this gr- great company, it's got loads of growth avenues ahead of it. It should compound its earnings higher and higher and higher over time. And, and that's basically what it's done. So you've seen over the past 10 years, I think the revenue has gone from somewhere around $3 billion a year to now about $9 billion a year. Um, the profit has quadrupled. The dividend was about a dollar a share. It's now three dollars a share. So n- now, as an income investor, you're you, on that original investment. You're getting something like a six percent yield. And and if you if you com- 
you know, that, that's the sort of wonder of compounding that we're trying to capture for our clients. And if you compare that to, you know, a typical income, like a, a, a shell, a shell is easy to pick on, right? Everyone picks on shell, but I'll, I'll pick on shell too. Um, if you look at, if you look at shell the past 10 years, even though it's had to started with a high yield since cut, I, I think it's delivered shareholders about four, maybe 5% return a year over the decade. Whereas analog devices is somewhere around 20% a year over t- every year for 10 years. I mean, it's just night and day, the difference. So it's that approach of looking for that fantastic long duration compounding that we think ends up giving income clients a much better result over their time horizon yeah. than, than just focusing on yield. Okay, well that that that's a good advert uh, for your skills as a fund manager. What 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 about times when it's worked less well? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. You, you ask a fund manager to pick it; they can all, should at least be able to pick one stock that went well. <laughs> so it's not really a test of skill, is it? So so um, what one time it didn't go well. Um, let's see. How about Pandora, the jewelry company? You know, the jewelry chain. Mm, that was so our average holding period is around seven to eight years and i think we sold that one within three so it was an unusually short period of ownership for us and that was one where we had thought that a lot of these things applied you know the long-term growth and the dividends and we did a lot of due diligence on it and about a year into our ownership the the board decided to halve the dividend and we said, well, but there's no need for it. Sorry, well, we'll come flummoxed by it. And they said, oh, yes, well, you see, we'd, we'd reached out to shareholders before and they said they'd like some more dividends, so we put it up. And then, then, but then we asked them again and said, oh, no, not that much. We want a few more buybacks now, so we put it down again. And so that, that commitment to growing the dividend alongside the earnings over a long period of time, we just, we just miscalibrated their commitment to that from what they'd said to us. And, you know, our bad, we, we didn't. We didn't get on the same page with that one. Um, we took some learnings from that one, which we've applied. But that's one where, um, yeah, a, a quick end up because it, it didn't match what we were looking for. We'd, we'd misdiagnosed that. Okay, thanks. Um, income investing often has some overlap with with value investing, um, and you know it's clear that classic value investing, deep value, it isn't what you guys do. How do you value stocks? Mm. Well, I. Personally, I like to use, um, you know, Warren Buffett's observation about, you know, the, the fundamentals of investing, and that point he makes about investing being as old as as ancient Greece, because Aesop, of Aesop's fables, had already worked out the basic principle two thousand years ago that you've got a bird in the hand, and you think it's worth two, potentially two or more in the bush that you don't have, and what you're doing when you invest fundamentally is you're giving up that certain one pound in the hand in the hope that in future you're going to get back something worth two pounds or four pounds or even 10 pounds. So when it comes to valuing shares, I think the most fundamental thing that you're you're asking as an investor is, if I buy this share at a price of one today, what do I think it's going to be worth in the future? Is the market eventually going to realize, oh, hey, actually this this company's worth two or four or 10? and, and obviously, you're trying to avoid those where it's already priced in because the market is valuing it at ten, and you're like, well, yeah, maybe, maybe eight, nine, ten, something like that. So, um, if you go back to the example, or go go to the example of Apple, so that's another one of our holdings that we've had for more than ten years. Ten years ago, well, we we said with Apple, look, the market is saying it's worth 
X. And we said, but hang on, if you think about all the growth opportunities and the avenues and the blah, 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 surely the future earnings are worth way more than that in their aggregate and, and and we'll get that back at some point so so that that approach to valuation you can try and shortcut that with pe multiples you can go down rabbit hole constructing a dvtcf model whatever you want to do but but fundamentally that's the assessment that you're trying to make the other thing that i think a lot about with valuation is about um probabilities and skews of outcomes what i really like is investments where in the worst case scenario, you're thinking, well, I think the shares price is flat or maybe the capital falls a bit. And then in, in your in your sort of more likely case, you think it's going to do quite well. And then there's a there's a best case where it does fantastically well. And and so I like to think a lot about the skew of different outcomes. And if I can say, look, worst case from here, maybe I maybe we lose a little bit of money, but but the skews are really to the upside from here. Again, I think that's a very helpful way to think about valuation um, rather than just some of the simple metrics. Okay. That's inter- interesting you mentioned Warren Buffett. Um, as I was looking at your, your portfolio a bit, I was reminded of, a, well, another great investor, uh, now retired from Bailey Gifford, James Anderson. Um, you you have, uh, you know, I'm sure it's a, it's a bottom-up approach, but you have quite a lot less in UK stocks than, than other global income than lots of other global income funds. I was wondering, you know, is, is there a reason why? Because I was thinking something James Anderson said in recent years is that he thinks, you know, some of the, the problems with the UK market are a problem with UK investors and, and they're, they're demanding too many dividends today and, and not enough investment from companies in their own business. What, what, what do you think about those points? Well, um, first, we, we, I think we own seven names in our 60 stocks which are uk based so we're not allergic or averse to the uk and, and i personally think well if you think of the size of the the world economy and the uk's place in it actually owning seven out of 60 it's actually already punching above its weight and you know for, for dividend investors there is that kind of interest in dividends in the uk market for a long time which is very helpful to for dividend growth style so um uh, now some people have a lot more and I, I don't know if that if that's the yield focus possibly or, or home market bias whatever it is but I, I wouldn't say that we're kind of oh, have too few we, we, they, they, they punch above their weight regarding James's thought on on, on UK paying out too much income I think that there, yes there is some truth in that definitely but I think the the, the wider point that James was making there which I completely agree with is um, you, you know 10 years ago it is now when Sir John Kay did the review of UK equity markets, the, the, the Kay review, and, and James was a big contributor to, to that report. The thing that they were really identifying was a, a challenge and a problem, unfortunately, for a lot of UK companies, um, was this one of, of time horizons that a lot of companies seem to be run, it's a bit of a revolving do- door of management. And um, sort of short-term focus and managers incentivized on one and three-year TSR and so forth, and so an, an absence of some of the, the the investment and the long-term thinking that really produces fantastic companies over long periods of time, and that that that's tied up a little bit with yes, some in, some investors want too much income out of their stops rather than the investment, but that's that's the fundamental one. My view is there there are some fantastic exceptions to that in the UK market. There are some very long-term thinkers. If I think of someone like a Tim Warrillow at Fevertree or a Brian Cassian at Experian or in the, actually off 
you know, outside the listed equity market, someone like Julian Metcalf running it to and formerly Pred, there are clearly people who have this long-term view about creating value for customers and building businesses on, on a decade-plus view. So you can find them in the UK market, and we try to have those in our portfolio because they align with what we're trying to do. But yes, unfortunately, there are a lot of companies out there um, where that there's more of a short-term approach and they're not run the right way for long-term value creation for shareholders and society. Hmm. Okay. Well, <laughs> it's it's a perennial topic. Um, thank you. Um, the portfolio has uh, a heavy focus on what's sometimes called quality stocks or, or maybe you'd call them compounding machines. Do you, do you think that those kinds of stocks have sold off too much on the on the inflation narrative? Um, some some of them, yes. I think it's it's more this combination of growth fears, which is tied up with the inflation narrative because of what it means for interest rates and so forth. Um, but yes, some of them have, and and what we've been finding certainly this year is that a lot of the names that we've been watching for a long time and getting to know have come back to share prices where we say, well, the odds feel very much in our, that, that skews point I was talking about earlier. It's the first, yeah, it's, it's the first time after goodness knows how we've sat, long we've sat and observed L'Oreal and applauded them from the sidelines. So then we've actually invested because because the share price has come back quite a long way in, uh, recently. A similar example with, um, uh, again, again I, I think of it as a long-term compounder, um, into it, the software business based in the US, the small business software and consumer software. Uh, again, the share price has come back a heck of a long way, and that's growth fears. And you see that time and again with companies that deal with small businesses. People think, oh, all the small businesses will go bankrupt. And actually, small businesses are incredibly vibrant, and they're always creating new ones. It's not as bad as anyone thinks. And so that, that, that's another one where, yeah, it's 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 come back a long way on those fears. And we've been able to say, hey, from here, the skew looks very attractive to us. Okay, so that that's the kind of theme of what what you've been doing. Yes, that, that's really dominated what we've been doing because we haven't seen a correction or a fall like this, particularly around growth, for some time. And you know what happens with them? I think one of the great things about being an active stock picker is you you have your portfolio, and you'll have these you have names in there where you've lost some confidence and you're less sure about them. And you don't like them so much. And the the, the amazing thing is is that whenever you get a, a sell off, and we saw this again at the start of COVID sometimes the, the names that you don't really like as much hold up remarkably well and you get this opportunity to sell something that you kind of don't like so much and get into you know invest in something which you're much more excited about on a 10-year view and so yes that's be, that's been a theme for us this year is oh wow you know <laughs> we can upgrade um, some of the the names it's it's a low turnover portfolio we buy maybe half a dozen names a year but still those opportunities are valuable and that's that's very much what we've been focused on this this year yeah. Okay. A, b- a bit more of a topical one. Um, I mean, we've discussed how you, you don't own Shell, for example, but um, I wondered what, what are your thoughts on, on windfall taxes? Um, you know, as we've seen recently in exceptional times, companies which return huge profits to their shareholders, whether that's through dividends or, or share buybacks, can become visible targets. What, what are well, your thoughts? I think thoughts? what it tells investors is you need to think very carefully about that risk before you invest in oil and gas producers or utilities or or, or banks or whatever so the kind of businesses that you know if, if you take that test of 
is, is this likely to appear in the tabloid newspapers under a headline saying, you know, rip off companies, steal our money once again? There are quite a lot of businesses out there like that where, right, rightly or wrongly, whether, whether you'd agree with that that should be the case, um, that, that comes up as a problem for them time and again. So, I mean, if you take oil and gas as an example, those companies, in my view, face a, a, a heck of a lot of challenges over the next five to ten years, lots of headwinds that they're facing. Um, and one of those is that ultimately they're making profits, extracting a resource, which some people say doesn't belong to them in the first place. Some people say is extremely um, bad for the, correctly, for the environment. Um, and they become a bit of a political football. Again, you might think that that's wrong and that it shouldn't happen. But as an investor, I think you have to admit that it can make a, a pretty big dent in the value of the shares that you own. And so you need to think very carefully about that that risk. And and, and my view is, is well, do, do you need to take that investment risk when you've got so many other companies out there that you can potentially invest in? Where that risk is is negligible, it's virtually it's virtually zero. Just focus on those those opportunities. Yeah. Okay. I was look I was looking at um, Scottish American Saints' annual report, and I saw. So you you do own a small position in a uh, a company, in fact, an investment mm, yes. trust called Greencoat UK Wind, um, and uh, in the Chancellor's most recent announcement. Um, well, there had been some rumours before that that the, the, these kinds of companies, so basically it owns wind farms and then passes on the income to investors, that there, there'd been some surprising rumours that these companies might be caught up in a windfall tax. And indeed, the Treasury said something they might said that's something they're still looking at. I mean, what, what was your reaction to that? Were, were you surprised? Did you think that's kind of crazy to hit renewable energy in that way? Well, or? yeah, I think it, it would be it would be daft, <laughs> frankly. I mean, it, you know. Th- Wind farms mm. and, and and solar are ultimately going to prove to be, they're going to be a lot cheaper to run, a lot cheaper electricity bills. Everybody likes that. It's good for the economy. A lot more secure. You can own them all domestically rather than importing them. Um, yes, they're intermittent, but that's going yeah. to be solved over the next 10 years because of um, battery deployment and things like that. Um, and they're much better for the environment. So should you, uh, when we're trying to roll the... Uh, yeah, if you're, try, if you're trying to These aren't the people we should encourage be on the, the change in the energy you makes over the next 10 years, you know, the, the, the government would be bonkers to go after the, the, them with windfall taxes. So if you go back to that point about probabilities and skews, our judgment going back many years with Green Coat is, well, who, who, where is the hammer more likely to fall of government intervention? Is it oil and gas, which does not have many of those and has many issues involved with it, or visit on renewables. And our, our bet has been that we're going to be much better off investing in something which is forward-thinking, the future growing, incentivized, in some cases supported by government, rather than in oil and gas. So, um, yeah, su- surprised that that headline floated around, but not surprised that... Um, Am I allowed to say that even Boris Johnson could work out that that was a bad idea? Is that is that permissible? Even Boris, even I'll allow you to say I was I was surprised myself. Um, what what one more um, stock specific question? If 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 that's all right, mm. um, Hargreaves Lansdowne is is another small position, and I think it's an interesting example. Um, it's it's a name that I think everyone who will listen to this podcast will know. And uh, actually, its shares have kind of gone sideways or, or declined 
quite a lot over the last few years. And interestingly enough, they, they recently cut their special dividend um, to invest more more in the business, basically to to invest in growth. What you know? What what are your thoughts about what's yep, going so on? So we're we're a relatively recent investor because we feel that having seen those de- declines, this is going back. 18 months I think um, having seen a lot of those declines it got to a point where we thought you know we'll probably not call the the, bo- the bottom but on a 10-year view the skew feels quite strongly in our favor from here um, and our view is that they've still got some fantastic tailwinds behind them in terms of in, you know Savers taking control of more of their finances, um, of DB schemes winding down, of a lot of the things that have driven their growth so far, they've still got a, a, a high reputation in the market. You know, if you look at customer surveys of what they think, um, have they been perfect? Absolutely not. But they still have a lot of trust from consumers, which they're building on. They're still winning new customers every year at an incredible rate actually so there's a lot of signs that are pointing to that still being a strong growing business now the dividend's an interesting one our view is first of all anything that's a special dividend we 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 treat it as a special we don't rely on it going forward because by name it's telling us that it's, it's probably a bit one-off um, but what we found is that when companies cut their dividends and the primary purpose is to reinvest in the business or maybe they, they've done an acquisition for future growth and then they're paying down debt with that or something like that. If that's the primary reason, often that's actually a good signal to invest more in the company because they're setting themselves up for the next wave of earnings in the future mm. and, the, and the earnings growth on that 10-year view. And that's the Hargreaves case, I think, that, that, that they, they're saying. We want to invest more in the business to make our products even better. Yeah. Whereas if it was a cut that was coming through because, you know, of some government stepping in or the business has fundamentally run out of options and needs to restructure or something like that, that's a very different kind of dividend cut and you want to stay well away from those. So in Hargreaves' case, our view is still longer term, we don't claim to have a crystal ball with 100% certainty. That would be mad as well. But we feel that the probabilities are quite strongly in our favor that this will continue being a really good growth business with good dividends and earnings growth. Mm. Okay, thanks. Um, last question on the portfolio, really. Hmm, You've got yeah. quite a few Chinese holdings. Um, again, a bit unusual for, for a global income fund. Can you discuss how that's developed over time and, and how those positions have been holding up mm. recently? Um so I guess it starts with our belief in the the future of the Chinese economy. Some people are very negative about that, and they will say they've built far too many houses, or, or whatever they whatever the objection is. But I guess stepping back, if you look at the history, the past hundred, two hundred years of countries that have gone forward versus versus sideways or backwards. Yeah, many of them go sideways for decades. They they never really on, deliver on their potential. But there are some, like Japan in the 70s or Korea or, or whatever, that do develop to very high levels of, of income per capita. And China looks like looks very much like it's going to be one of those countries, you know, through, through private enterprise, through supportive government, education and technology and, and, and so on. So that's, that's quite an attractive backdrop when you compare it to a lot of other econ- economies around the world, which are going sideways or backwards. So then on top of that, you have this really large and vibrant market of private companies who are 
often headed by by founder managers who are taking that long-term view we were talking about earlier on you know they're there to try and build their business for 10 15 20 years not you know three-year tsr or whatever they're often also very committed to paying rising dividends as they grow that that is something that surprised us but actually the dividend culture in in china is as strong if not stronger than in the uk and so what we found is that Mm -hmm. there are quite a number of companies and we've got six in our portfolio that fit very well with that you know long-term income and growth objective that we've got so for example um anta sports which has just i read the other day has just surpassed adidas now as the number two in the in its share of the chinese trainers market which is pretty remarkable when you think about how long adidas has been around um um that that company or netease the the video gaming company both cases run by founders long-term time horizons trying to build great products and businesses committed to growing their dividends and they've been fantastic investments for our, our our clients You've got to be careful of investing in China, okay? I don't want to be like, oh, just buy any Chinese. Obviously, um, and part of the skill that we're trying to bring is to look at, okay, where are the, the risks around this regulatory? Do 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 you want to invest in the education sector, for example, whatever it might be? Um, but if you can if you can navigate that, there are some fantastic long-term growth opportunities that are going to leave our clients, we hope, a lot better off over the long term. Okay. Well, thank, thanks, James. Um, I suppose la- last question from me. So we've, we've spoken plenty about the fund and fund management. Maybe it'd be interesting to, for, to give people a sense of, you know, what, what else you like to do. Um, you know, what, are, are there any kind of, uh, what, what's your biggest kind of outside interest other, other than uh, looking obsessively at stocks? Well, I have a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. So uh, they they're quite time consumptive so when it time. comes to um they go through various phases <laughs> and um recently it's been um playing a lot of cricket they're constantly out they've started playing a bit of that at school we're going out and putting the stumps in the ground and, and bowling and and then I, occasionally i get to bat which is nice but then they that's unfair dad you got to stop now go back to bowling and all that kind of stuff so so um so that's great and um <laughs> And yeah, and, okay. and and occasionally I get to talk to my wife as well once they're finished doing, doing cricket, which is a nice nice to do. <laughs> so, um, so family life is a big part for me as well. Um, one of one of my interests. Okay, well, I think I think that's a good answer. And maybe if we if we can make a spurious link, both both investing. That's in absolutely true. The long term, it's it's a test. It takes a long time to resolve and come through. But <laughs> if you can bat on through and play the odds, then great things can happen. Okay, great. Well, thanks very much, James. Th- thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. It was it was great to speak and uh, learn more about your approach. Yeah, very welcome. Great to be here. Thanks again. Great, and thank you. And the last thing to say to to those those listening is thanks very much today for um, uh, checking in with the Funds Fanatic Show podcast, and please join us again soon for more episodes. 